about fly fishing internet radio, your source for learning more about fly fishing in cold water, warm water, and salt water. Hello, I'm Roger Maves, your host for tonight's show. On this broadcast, we'll be featuring Paul Weimer, and he'll be answering your questions on bugs. This show will be 90 minutes in length, and we're broadcasting live over the internet. If you'd like to ask Paul a question, just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and use the Q&A text box there to send us your question. We'll receive your question immediately, and we'll try to answer as many of them as possible on the show tonight. And while you're there, make sure you sign up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. Just fill in your name and email address in the form on, our, on the right side of our web pages, and we'll let you know when the next live show will be. This broadcast is being recorded and will be available for playback on our website about 48 hours after the show ends. You can also find it on any of the podcast distribution sites like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. So if you have to leave early, you can return to our website or any of the podcast platforms at your convenience and listen to the recording at any time. If you're out and about on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, we'd sure appreciate it if you'd share a podcast. And when you do, use the hashtag AskAboutFlyFishing and also hashtag FlyFishing. In fact, if you have a moment, go ahead and do it right now. We'd really appreciate you sharing the word about our shows. The content of this broadcast is copyrighted and is the property of the Knowledge Group, Inc., doing businesses ask about fly fishing. When we return, we'll be talking with Paul Weimer about bugs. The Colorado River at Lee's Ferry is called by some the world's largest spring creek. It's a massive clear-running tailwater fishery that runs 15.5 miles from the base of the Glen Canyon Dam to the upper reaches of the Grand Canyon. At times, it gives the impression of being not one or two, but a series of parallel spring creek-like waterways. The fishing is great, and the scenery is gorgeous. Lee's Ferry Anglers provides professional guide service to this outstanding rainbow trout fishery, as well as food and lodging at Cliff Dwellers Restaurant and Lodge. See for yourself why Lee's Ferry is on every fly fisher's must-do list. Visit leesferryanglers.com or call them at 800-962-9755. That's 800-962-9755, or visit leesferryanglers.com. Before we introduce Paul, we'd like to let you know about the great prizes we have to give away tonight. For our drawing tonight, we'll be giving away a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International and then one-year subscription to Fly Fishing and Tying Journal. So you have two chances to win tonight in their drawing. Now, if you haven't registered yet for the drawing, you can do so now. Just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and look for the link under Paul's section that says register for our free drawing. Click on that link, fill out the form, and we'll announce the winners at the end of the show. We'll also be giving away a copy of Paul's book, The Bug Book, courtesy of Headwaters Books. So if you'd like to see more about what Headwaters publishes, go to headwaterbooks.com. And here's how you can win Paul's book. First, you must be the first person to answer the question we ask at the end of the show. And the question is going to be about something that Paul and I talk about during the show. It could be a one, it could be a two-part question. So take lots of notes, and when the time comes, go to our homepage, fill out that form, on our homepage and submit it along with your name and your location. And the first person that gets the answers correct will win Paul's book, The Bug Book. So pay attention, take lots of notes, and type fast, and we'll see if you don't win at the end of tonight. Our guest tonight is Paul Weimer. Paul is a fly fisherman magazine contributing editor and the author and co-author of several fly fishing books. He's a licensed Montana fishing guide, former New York State licensed fishing guide, and the owner of Weimer Fly Fishing, LLC. Paul has managed fly shops and guide services in New York, Pennsylvania, and Montana, and has been a production fly tire as well as a contract fly designer for Montana Fly Company. 
He is also the designer of the Daiichi Hook Model 1230, Weimer's Mayfly Hook. Paul is one of the founders of the Friends of the Upper Delaware River and the 2009 co-winner of Fooders Upper Delaware One Bug Tournament. He received the 2011 Upper Delaware Council Recreation Award for his book, The Fly Fishing Guide to the Upper Delaware River. And Paul's book, The Bug Book, was featured as Amazon's third highest customer-rated fly fishing book by WideOpenSpaces.com. Paul and his wife, Ruthann, and their English massive olive live in Paradise Valley, Montana, where Paul writes and guides fly anglers in the legendary waters that flow through Yellowstone National Park in southwestern Montana. Paul, welcome back to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. Thanks, Roger. It's great to be back again. Yeah, yeah. Hasn't been that long. It's nice to talk with somebody again quickly. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it was like... Before I have people back, but uh, I always wanted to do, you know, talk about bugs and your bug book, and now's the time. Let's do just that. So, you know, I think many of us fly fishers don't really want to be an entomologist, right? <laughs> I mean, uh, <laughs> sure. we want to know just enough to catch the fish, really, I think is what it comes down to. So I thought we'd kind of approach tonight from the standpoint of not the, the entomologist so much as the fly fisher and learning about these bugs and how we can identify them and match them as quickly as possible without a lot of scientific knowledge going on. But with that said, we have to get into it a little bit. Let's talk about it. You wrote the book on, you know, the bug book. Why don't you talk about just why that book came about in the first place, just so we have a, a background of that book. Sure. So uh, Jay Nichols initially approached me about writing a book in conjunction with Midcurrent, which was just going to be an e-version of this book, a basic book about bugs. A lot of our entomological works that have been done over the years are, have become sort of outdated, which is pretty easy to do. These days, with the work that's going on in entomology, you can write a book today, and it can be out of date with taxonomical names in about three days. I wrote this e-book, and Jay really liked it, and they decided to turn it into a, a hardcover book and publish through Headwaters Press. Oh, wow. Okay. Okay. Yeah, it's interesting you say here you say the books go out of date quickly because it seems like, gosh, these bugs have been around for a long time, right? What has changed? Sure. You know, but, science is always evolving, right? And yeah. scientific techniques is always evolving. And a lot of the work, uh, he's since retired, but there was a man named Patrick McCafferty who's an entomologist with Purdue University, and they were doing a lot of entomological work and DNA testing and using new techniques to find relationships between aquatic insects. And it was through a lot of that work that, that a lot of taxonomical shifts took place. So some of the, you know, you still hear people speak a little bit of Latinized bug names, and sometimes they use stuff that was valid in the 70s that is no longer true today. Hmm, interesting, interesting, yeah. Well, I know there's, yeah, yeah, not to say there isn't science left to do, because there's a lot about fish, especially saltwater fish, that we know little or nothing about. Well, they're just learning about tarpon and bonefish and permit. Sure. Yeah, still a big mystery out there in a, in a lot of respects with fishing. What I'd like to do, we've got a bunch of general questions that came in from our audience, and uh, some of them are about presentation and really kind of a real general thing. A lot of good questions came in. 
But I'd like to start out tonight going through the four major insect groups, you know, mayflies, caddis, stoneflies, and midges, and just talk about each one of those. And, you know, I found myself out in the river and going, well, what is that flying around out there? And uh, sometimes you can't catch them, and you're trying to figure the whole thing out. So let's start out with mayflies. And to set the stage, let's talk about the life cycle of the mayfly and kind of walk us through that first. Sure. Well, mayfly females lay eggs, and those eggs hatch, and they become what we call nymphs. And the nymphs wander around the stream bottoms for anywhere from a couple of months to a couple of years, and they go through what's called instars, where they shed their skin and grow new skin and get larger at approximately the same time every year. And I say approximately because there's a lot of things that go into this from water temperature and water flow and, and things like that that are pretty changeable from year to year, uh, but approximately in the same time, but always in exact species order. So if one species normally occurs before another, it will happen that way all the time. Those nymphs will change into dunt, what we fly fishers call duns, entomologists call them subimigos. And those duns breathe air and they fly off. And depending on the species, anywhere between, let's say, an hour to a few days, they'll go, most of them will fly to streamside vegetation where they'll split out of that skin again and become a sexually mature insect, which is called a spinner. Entomologists call that an imigo. The males and females will gather often over riffles, and they'll mate while they fly, and the females will lay their eggs, and the, and the life cycle begins again. Mm -hmm. Now, if, and this kind of goes into what Joel from Suffer New York asked, he says, how can you identify a bug from his flight pattern? I think that's a really good question. And maybe we could talk about that in conjunction with how you identify a mayfly if it's not sitting on your hand or in a net. What's sure. the best way to know if that hatch is going on? It's sort of difficult to see anything flying in front of you and know for certain what it is without grabbing it. You can see a little orange bug flying around, and you're sure it's sulfurs, and when one lands on you, suddenly it's a crane fly. But generally, mayflies will have upright wings. Most of them have two large wings and then two smaller hind wings, although not every species does that. They sort of have longer abdomens, and they will either have two or three tails. Every once in a while, somebody will ask me to identify something, and I'll say, well, how many tails do it have? And they'll say one. And that's impossible. That means one of them or two of them <laughs> fell off somewhere along the way. Yeah. And that happens an awful lot. Interestingly enough, and this is only interesting if you're a real weirdo like me, but the only way for an entomologist to positively identify a mayfly species is to catch a virgin male spinner, and they dissect their sexual organs, and they look at them under a microscope, and they count the number of spines on there. It has to be a virgin because the spines get deformed after they mate with females. And I won't be that doing that anytime way. soon. <laughs> Come on, it's a lot of fun. I, 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 Charlie Mack, who was a, a great friend and a mentor of mine, when he was moving from his home, gave me all of his microscopes and gave me a whole series of slides, which are mayfly sexual organs that he dissected and put on slides so he could view them under a microscope and identify what species they were. <laughs> Yeah, oh, geez, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, 
Yeah, that's another whole level, really. Yeah. <laughs> so you just brought up a, an interesting question I've always wondered about. Three tails, two tails. When you're tying flies, do you pay attention to that as far as trying to match your pattern, you know, with duns and so forth? Well, or does it Roger, really make any difference? There you go. I think you're asking two questions at once. Do I pay attention to it or does it make a difference? Yeah. Um, I have tied <laughs> tails that were divided into thirds, Timothy mayflies that had three tails, but whether or not the fish cared, I, I sort of doubt it. I don't think trout can really count. Yeah. You know, I, I think, I don't know if you ever saw that movie, Jeremiah Johnson with Robert Redford, and, and he yeah. gets off his, his horse to shoot an elk, and, and he says to the old trapper, he goes, what if the elk sees me? And he goes, elk don't know how many legs a horse has. And I think that's sort of the way we are with trout and mayflies. They, they don't really count <laughs> tails and legs too much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So back to Joel's question, you know, when you're looking at mayflies versus caddis, can you tell the difference in the air, I mean, without catching them in the way that they fly? For the most part, yes. Yeah. And it's going to sound sort of strange until you see it, but mayflies fly in sort of a distinctive way with their abdomens hanging below their wings it sort of looks dainty and, and beautiful in its own way. Caddisflies look sort of like little moths, the same terrestrial insects you'll see around a, a, fire, a campfire at night. Once you see a few of them, it, it's pretty easy to discern one from another at just a glance. Now, yeah. being able to tell you specifically what it is while they're flying, that's a lot more difficult. Yeah, yeah. But you can tell if it's a mayfly or a caddis hatcher. And I, I did read, like, we, we can talk about this here in a minute, your hatch chart that you have in your book about how you say many times it's crossover hatches. You could have, you know, sure. two different species hatching at the same time, right, which really makes it <laughs> confusing, right? So um, Absolutely. Yeah, now, you divided up uh, the mayflies into, like, four families. Is that really important? I mean, is that useful to us? And you're talking about the nymph stage, right, as far sure. as? Sure. The families go? Yeah. So from a dry fly perspective, it's absolutely completely unimportant. The only mm -hmm. time I would say that it would matter is if you're nymph fishing. You know, if you're fishing sunken flies, like knowing that a mayfly, for instance, is considered a swimmer, you could fish a nymph pattern with a little short strips, like, you know, say an Isonychia, a slate rake and that could help you catch fish that you wouldn't otherwise catch. And if you know, say, that green drakes, eastern green drakes, or brown drakes, which are found across the United States, are burrowing mayflies, they stay pretty far in the substrate until they get close to emerging, so you know that generally it's only effective to imitate them within a week or two of their emergence when they're more readily available to the trout. Mm-hmm. Okay, okay. Yeah, that's, yeah pretty subtle differences in, as far as nymphing goes, right, as far as, I mean. Sure. Yeah, yeah, that are maybe tough to imitate. Tell us about, I found your chart very interesting because I've never seen a chart like that before in your book. Talk about how that, how you created that chart and how it's laid out just to kind of give people a mental image of that. Sure. One of the things that was the big focus of the bug book, one of the sort of overriding ideas is that all of us fly fishers for most of our lives have been programmed to study hatch charts. And hatch charts are probably one of the most useless things in all of fly fishing. I've seen green drake, eastern green drakes hatch with a month difference in time. I've seen them the second week of May and I've seen them the second week of June. So knowing that somebody wrote in a static hatch chart that you can expect this insect 
it's not really viable to believe that. Too many things impact that. Water levels, air temperature, water temperature, all that comes into play to determine when a hatch will commence. So what I've really focused on in this book is hatch progression, and I tried to highlight that in the chart. So you may not know the exact date in which an aquatic insect will emerge, but you know that one will emerge in an orderly sequential pattern after another. So if you're out there fishing and you see Hendrickson's hatchings, let's say, you know that you're going to start to see sulfurs probably sometime shortly after that. So you can prepare your fly boxes for that. Right. And then you also ranked the importance of sure. the stage of the hatch, right? Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. For fly fishers, some of the stages are relatively important. You think of some of the, like, let's take the summer blue quill species. For instance, the male spinners almost always fly away from the water after they mate. So the spinner falls are, are relatively sparse. Or something like, again, a green drake nymph that, that is only important in a relatively short window for fishing. Or spinner falls that tend to happen after dark. So if you're not a person that likes to fish after dark, the green drake spinner falls may not be that important to you because they often happen at twilight. So I tried to take all that into account in the charts. So when we're talking, we really need to look at each of the I don't know if it's, uh, I'm using the right term, species of mayflies. And you may not need all the stages. In other words, of course, the nymph stage is, is probably useful with all of them, I would expect. Correct me if I'm wrong. But the dun or the spinner stage may not be important for that particular species, right? Sure, or, or you even have some insects like the Ephron leucon hatch, which is, they call it the white fly, which can be very important in some trout streams where some the males don't turn into spinners at all. They're ready to go. Noting that you don't need a downwing spinner pad to intimidate that can be important. Yeah, and how do you sort that out? I mean, well, just by studying each of the insects that are, in the fisheries that you fish and try to yeah, so that, map that's, each one? You know, Roger, that's really good questions. The problem is, unless you're fishing what we fly fishers generally consider to be our best trout waters, which have almost all of the hatches, whether you're talking in the western or the eastern United States, you're going to have to figure out what hatches on the streams you fish. And if you fish a popular stream, a fly shop or somebody can probably help you with that. But if you fish sort of your own little hidden gem, you, you may have to sort that out yourself, which is why I sort of encourage people to keep notes about what they see from season to season and year to year to know what they can expect to find. Although water chemistry can change, floods can impact things, a pollution event. Right. So just because you have a hatch this year doesn't mean it'll be returning next year for certain. Yeah. Yeah, we were just doing a show on a couple months ago, but we were talking about uh, Williams Fork River in Colorado that where uh, they came in and restructured the river. And, and Chris, who I was interviewing, was saying how the whole hatch on the river has changed now. And, you know, sure. where the insects are hatching and because of the pools and the, the structure they put in and stuff, 
He says he's having, after guiding it for tens of years, he's having to relearn the river, you know, as sure. a guide to try to sort it all out again, which I thought was really interesting about how much that restructuring had changed the, the insects and their hatch patterns and so forth. Yeah, very interesting. Absolutely. My last year living on the Upper Delaware River system, we experienced what I believe they called a 500-year flood. It was catastrophic. It wiped parts of some small towns pretty much off the map. And after the floodwaters receded, I mean, there were parts of homes in the water. And I was wading some of the river in places where there used to be a firm bottom. One spot I sunk down almost to my knees. And anything that churns the stream bottom to that extent can really mess up aquatic insects for certain. So I actually thought after that that some of the burrowing mayflies in the Delaware River system, their hatches weren't quite as good. Yeah, yeah. And it's interesting how that also translates into the saltwater. I've been reading uh, Bill Horn, who I interviewed, I guess maybe a year ago or so, talking about saltwater fishing. And he's talking about how much the flats change down in Florida. Same kind of hmm. thing. A storm comes sure. in, moves the sand around, moves this around. Now what used to be a good tarpon area where they'd feed is dead now. And they move somewhere else. And it's a constantly changing landscape under the water, which we... For sure. Yeah, yeah, the casual the fly fisher may not notice that, but you guys <laughs> who, who guide notice it regularly, I'm sure. For sure, Roger. And one of the interesting things from that perspective is whenever a lot of sediment gets blown out of a river, it may sort of reduce some of the burrowing mayfly populations, but mm -hmm. perhaps the clingers or the crawling mayfly nymphs will actually find a niche because the water is more acceptable to them as it, as it flows through the gravel with less substrate there. All the effects aren't necessarily negative. It just might be different. Yeah, yeah, always changing, yeah. Yeah, Paul, let's take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll talk about some of the flies you might have in your box to imitate mayflies. So hang tight. We'll be right back. There are not many places in the world where you can fly fish for permit, tarpon, bonefish, and snook, all within a few miles of each other, but you can in Belize. When you fish with Charlie Leslie Fly Fishing, you're on a private island and are only minutes away from some of the finest fly fishing in Belize. You'll start out from Placencia and take just a 30-minute boat ride to your lodging on the island. Once you're there, you'll be fishing lagoons full of tarpon and targeting permit on the flats of Permit Alley. Bonefish and snook are ready for your cast as well. Charlie Leslie, with over 50 years of experience in the waters of Belize, his son Marlon Leslie, and their other hand-picked guides know the local waters like no others. Book your next Belize adventure now with Charlie Leslie Fly Fishing. Visit charlielesliefly.fishing.com. Again, charlielesliefly.fishing.com. Or call 303-430-4634. That's 303-430-4634. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, and we're talking with Paul Weimer about bugs. So if you'd like to ask Paul a question, just go to our homepage and uh, fill out that Q&A text box, send us your question, and we'll try to answer it on the show tonight. Paul, I always ask my guests, you know, what's going on in your fly fishing world? You're guiding out of Montana now, right, in the Paradise Valley area? Yeah, my wife and I live in Paradise Valley. I guide in the park, and I guide through a couple of outfitter friends in the Paradise Valley Spring Creek in the Yellowstone River as well. And are you, how can people find out about you and your guide service? Sure. I have a website. It's weimerflyfishing.com, and my information's on there, and people are able to email me through that. That's probably the easiest way for people to get a hold of me. Okay. 
Okay. And of course, I continue to write. I uh, just finished a, a story for Flatfish Room Magazine that'll be out soon. I'm working on a couple others, and right. and I have a book that ought to be out in let's say June, maybe. Ah, what's that? Uh, Can you tell us what it's going to be on? Sure, it's about the favorite flies for Yellowstone National Park. Oh, oh, okay, good, good. Yeah, I, I know you had Eric Naguski on and on the show, and he did the favorite flies for Pennsylvania, and uh, it's another yeah. book in that series. Yeah, yeah, I got, I just got the other one. There's one uh, Oregon too that I need to. Yeah, they, that I they're doing a whole bunch day. of them. Yeah. Yeah, and Maine. I think John Shuey and Bob Bob Mallard. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah, whole series. And Mike Valla did the original one. Yeah. Yeah. Cool, cool, cool. Now, are you doing any uh, speaking at shows or clubs or anything? Is that? I haven't you do? done the shows since I moved to Montana, and uh, it's funny. I I just got a. A very nice gentleman just asked me to to do a Zoom presentation for his TU chapter, and I was, and I had to tell him I I've never been on Zoom in my life, and, and I haven't put together <laughs> I haven't put together a PowerPoint presentation in probably ten years, so I've yeah. sort of taken a step away from that. You know, Roger, there's only okay. so many hours in the day, and oh and, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, and and I sort of haven't been doing a lot of speaking engagements these days. Yeah, that's funny that you mentioned that, too, because right at the beginning of COVID, I helped um, Gold Coast fly fishers in San Diego do Zoom meetings because they didn't know how to do it, but they wanted to have their meetings, so I hosted it for them, <laughs> and we got everybody on there, and we had some presenters come in, and uh, then they got the hang of it and, and took off on their own. But, yeah, a lot of clubs were doing that and are still doing it, too. So, yeah, Roger, uh, I just got on Facebook like six years ago. You know, we're going to have to wait for, like, COVID Delta. <laughs> <laughs> before I start getting on Zoom, you know? Okay, okay. We'll, we'll leave that alone. All right, all right. Let's talk about fly patterns here. And this is always, you know, a conundrum, I think, for folks. You see, uh, talking about Facebook, you'll see Pat Dorsey always takes these pictures of his fly boxes. And sure. his fly box if you see his midge fly box, it just blows your mind. It's like, how many thousand flies, Pat, do you have in that box? Sure. But what do you think is an appropriate approach to imitating a particular insect from a, a fly pattern perspective? And I'm I'm looking at here when you said hatch charts are kind of worthless, but they are kind of tell you when in general things, like I just pulled up random, Bighorn River, and it says uh, April to May, spring betas, June to July, yellow sally, pale morning guns, July to August. If I was going up there in June, I would be probably focusing on the betas, the yellow sallies, and pale morning guns and have to be prepared for those three major hatches up there, it seems. So, sure. How much coverage do you give to each one of those as far as the to trying to cover the life cycle? How strong is your back, Roger? I, <laughs> I advise you know having it having a UPS truck behind you full of fly boxes. Oh, okay, so I, okay. I think the last time we talked, I told you yeah. I, I'm sort of nuts when it comes to the number of fly patterns I. I was right. fishing this little creek, and there was a dark green drake catch, and I didn't have a dark green drake in my box, and this caused me severe PTSD everything. So, <laughs> I, yeah, so I, I'm constantly looking for a bigger pack to squeeze more boxes in. 
Do you? Well, we're talking about normal or... people, Paul. Normal, a normal person. <laughs> Roger, we're talking about fly fishers. Normal has nothing to do with this conversation. Oh, okay, that's true. That's true. <laughs> right? Well taken. Uh, so I would say, I mean, is there any worse feeling than when you're standing there and, and there's a big fish rising in front of you? And you've just tied on the last fly pattern to imitate the hatch it's obviously eating, and they won't eat that fly. I guess that's where I'm at. So, like, yeah. I would rather have a, as many bullets in my gun as possible, right? Yeah. So, like, yeah. you can go crazy with it for sure. And, honestly, it really matters where you're fishing. So if you're fishing a stream that gets relatively little pressure or a stream that is comparatively sterile, to other more famous rivers like like let's say for instance i was fishing a little mountain stream i would need far fewer fly patterns there than if i was fishing mm -hmm. pens creek or the upper delaware river which are just bug factories if i'm fishing summertime on the yellowstone i would need far fewer fly patterns than i would need if i was on the henry's fork and that's sort of how i look at it i just would like to have options and you know <laughs> of course, you know, you can have too many if they won't fit on you. But I tend to like to bring as, as many hatch-matching patterns as I can. Do you break down your boxes, for instance? Do you have, a, do you have like, a, a box for granum caddis and tan caddis box, or do you kind of mix things up in there? Sure. I, first off, in February, I have all kinds of stuff that looks nice and orderly. By the time September comes around, it's a total disaster. But I tend to have caddis boxes and mayfly boxes and stonefly boxes, and I sort of separate them that way. And I would say this. I generally carry more fly patterns to imitate mayflies than I do to imitate caddisflies and stoneflies. So caddisflies and stoneflies generally do a lot of the same stuff. What you're really interested there is pattern size and the shade of the color of the insect. When it comes to mayflies, they don't all do the same thing. Some of them emerge on the, on the stream bottom and swim to the surface as fully formed duns. Some of them emerge in the surface films. Some of them emerge on rocks or grasses on the edge of the stream, and some of them emerge in the water column. So I want to have something that I can imitate all that. So do you kind of mix those? In other words, do you have a blue-wing olive box and a pale morning dun box and put the nymphs in, the duns and the spinners in there? Or do you have a mayfly nymph box and then dry fly nymph box? And how do you organize that? Sure. I'm more a generalist when it comes to, to nymph patterns. So, you know, I was just thinking about this with my dry fly book that, that just came out um, this year. I... I actually probably nymph fish more than I fish dry flies because I fish year-round, and there aren't a lot of dry fly opportunities, you know, when, when the water's frigid in Montana for six months out of the year. So yeah. um, I'm sort of a generalist when it comes to nymphs, and I think it's more important to imitate their general profiles and sizes. When it comes to mayflies, again, it will depend on where I'm fishing, but I do tend to have the boxes broke down to specific hatches, like, I know the last thing I want to do is if I'm carrying a dozen fly boxes with me on the stream, which I do from time to time, I don't want to have to dig through nine boxes to find a, a variation of a PMD I'm looking for. So I try mm -hmm. to keep all the PMDs together. So I do sort of mm -hmm. organize it in that way. Yeah, I've seen some people kind of 
put, for instance, the PMDs in their box from, you know, nymphal stage through done and you know, the whole thing, and they're all in a sure. row, you know. It's like, okay, here's my whole life cycle right there in a row, so to speak, and maybe different patterns for the different parts of that life cycle. But, yeah, they have, like, one place to go, so once they've identified it. So kind of an interesting approach. Well, I don't feel so bad again about carrying so many fly boxes. <laughs> I'm going, I'm, yeah, I may have a problem. Yeah, yeah. Well, even <laughs> I'm getting ready to go down to Campeche next month to fish for baby tarpon, and so I'm looking at nice. all my tarpon flies now. And it's, you know, it's the same kind of thing. Well, yeah, I better have something purple and black, but I better have something light, too. So I better have, you know, <laughs> it's like, you know it keeps getting fuller and fuller. So. <laughs> when I was working for the TCO fly shops running the State College and Spruce Creek stores, uh, Tony Gemmon, the owner of TCO, was, was kind enough to send George Daniel and me down to, to go bone fishing in Andros. And he gave us fly boxes full of all these bonefish flies and, and I, I remember thinking I had this awesome selection. And at the end of the trip, I said to the guide, who was just great, I said, hey, if you want anything out of these boxes, you can just go ahead and take it. And he looked at me and took four flies. <laughs> That's it, so I, huh? I don't know if he thought that I had too many flies or just didn't care for any of them. So, oh, yeah. that's very humiliating. <laughs> yeah, it sort of was. Yeah, yeah. That's funny because I always do that too, but get flies kind of part of the tip, right? Here, you know. Because yeah, right, some of these sure, countries, sure. They, the, only way, the only place they can get flies is if they're tying them. There's no fly shops down there. And to try sure. to import them and stuff is tough. So, But, yeah, I hear what you're saying. That's funny. Well, let's talk, a, let's talk about caddis. Back again to basics. What's the life cycle of the caddis? Sure. Unlike mayflies, caddis flies have a complete life cycle which means they have a resting or pupa stage. So caddisflies are obviously born out of eggs, and they turn into larvae, which look like little tiny worms. And those larvae, at approximately the same time every year, will seal themselves off. So there's different types of caddisflies. Most of them make cases, but they don't all. The ones that don't will spin themselves a little silk cocoon, and they'll rest inside that that cocoon, and, and they'll pupate and become, they'll grow wings and be ready for flight. And then they will chew their way out of that and swim to the surface as adults. And then those adults will mate and lay their eggs, and, and it begins anew. Okay, okay. And we kind of talked about identifying the caddis uh, when we are talking about the mayflies. And are there, again, the... The different families have to do with what's happening under the water primarily, and they're different, you know, whether they're net builders or case builders or whatever. How much of that do we need to know to, you know, when we're nymphing to match the hatch? How important is that to us? It's not super vital. The main time I would say it's important is if you're fishing, let's say, the granum hatch in the east, which is pretty much the same as the Mother's Day caddis hatch in the west, those Brachycentris species, they're case makers. They live in little brown-colored, they almost look like ice cream cones or oil derrick. And so if you're out there just fishing, they're green in color, but if you're just fishing a green larva without including that case before the hatch begins, you might not catch anything. So it could be important to know if you're fishing a free-living species, like the Recophila caddis, a green caddis, which just wanders around the rocks like mayfly nymphs, you could fish that with just a, a green nymph. 
But if you're trying to imitate the Mother's Day caddis, you would want to include a case. And people have designed patterns like the peeking caddis and things like that, which which are basically brown-bodied with a little green at the tip to make it look like the larva is peeking out. So it, it can matter from that perspective. Okay, okay. What do you think are the most important caddisfly to fly fishers? And it may be different sure, east I, and west. I mean, tan caddis, the hydropsyche species, are pretty important everywhere. And ironically, unlike mayflies and to a certain extent stoneflies, the most important caddisflies are probably just as important in the east as they are in the west. And the brachycentris species, which is the Mother's Day caddis and the granum, the hydropsyche, which are tan caddis, and the recophyla, which are green caddis. And I would probably put those at the three most important, but on any given river or stream, you could have caddis that could be way more important than those. And there's certainly other caddis, you know, October caddis and little sister sedges and all kinds of other things, the Silatrita caddis, that could matter on your particular stream at, at any given time during the year. Caddis are <laughs> sort of understudied. There's a lot of things about caddis that we probably still don't know yet. Mm-hmm. You know, which it kind of brings up a point that we talk about a lot on many of the shows is, you know, check with the local fly shop. You always kind of you hire a guide on a, a river you may have not fished before, whatever, and and you've got your caddis patterns in the box, and yet he says, well, you need to buy these in the shop. They they got a little different look to them, just slightly. And you always, you know, kind of wonder, well, is that real, or are we just trying to sell flies here, or what? But <laughs> But from what you're saying, I can see how these little, you know, changes from fishery to fishery can probably be very important. In other words, that particular caddis on that river is just a little bit different, and the fish treat it a little bit differently, and those local patterns may make a difference. Do you think that's the case? Absolutely. I mean, there's a caddis hatch on the Firehole River in Yellowstone National Park. They call the White Miller and it's a white caddis, and it is absolutely vital that you have that caddis pattern with you throughout a, a good portion of the fishing season. But there aren't any on the Yellowstone River in Paradise Valley, so I never fish them there. So oh, it, yeah. it absolutely can be that specific waterways have specific hatches that are very important there, and sometimes maybe just there and nowhere else. Right. And that, that white miller, it's like, what, two sizes, right? Just two sizes or something like that? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I had to tie some before I went up there last time, and uh, I was going, wow, yeah. this is this is an easy part of the box to fill. <laughs> you know, <I> was like, <laughs> sure, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> what other things might one need to know from either matching the hatch or an entomology standpoint about caddis that maybe people don't think about, you know, that will help them to catch more fish? Well, caddis flies probably more than anything. Movement is probably a real important facet to imitating them. You know, caddis flies tend to get off the water pretty quick. If not, they sort of skitter around. And elk air caddis and most of the caddis dry fly patterns, not all of them, but most of them are pretty buoyant. And one of the reasons for that is the ability to intentionally move the caddis in front of a rising fish because they will sometimes key on that movement and that can be pretty important. I usually try to, if a fish seems to be 
focusing on that, I'll, I'll try to skitter the fly maybe a foot or two ahead of the fish and then throw a little slack in my line and try to run it over them drag-free for a couple of reasons. Number one, sometimes they prefer it that way. And number two, you know, trout aren't perfect. We sort of think of them as, as like uh, superheroes or something that they never make mistakes. But trout miss bugs all the time. You can see it happening. So I don't want them to miss my caddis because I pull it out, out of their way as they're rising to eat it when I'm skittering it. I try to float it over them drag-free at the very end, but let them see it move beforehand. Any particular uh, caddis patterns you really like? I think I could, if you told me for the rest of my life, for dry flies in a way that I could only fish an L-care caddis and an X-caddis, I would be just fine with that. Just fine, uh, yeah. Yeah. For nymphs, uh, the bird-of-prey caddis is a caddis I've had a lot of success with over the years. But a lot of standard wet fly-looking fly patterns will work great for emerging caddis. Yeah, a lot of the, like, green body, kind of dark head sure. seem to work in a lot of situations for me. Sure. What about the sparkle pupa? Do you find yourself using those? I do, and they're great if, if you want to swing some of those. Ironically, one of my favorite uses for the sparkle pupa are the ones that are not weighted, and I'll dust those with frog sandy or something like that and fish that in the surface film. And I've mm. caught a lot of fish that were eating caddis on a dry, you know, one of La Fontaine's sparkle pupas that, you know, is traditionally fished wet, but I'm fishing them dry. And, and that's uh, been a pretty good fly for me over the years, uh, a lot of times in a lot of places. Interesting. Yeah, I've never heard of that before. There's a tip for you folks. Give that one a try. Yeah, Gary Lonfontaine uh, created a lot of great patterns, and that's just one of them that's for sure. lived on and on for years and years. Let's talk about stoneflies next. Now, stoneflies, again, let's start with the life cycle so we can understand how we might match those flies. Sure. Like mayflies, stoneflies have an, what's considered to be an incomplete metamorphosis. They hatch out of eggs, they become nymphs, and they spend one to three years, depending on the species, wandering around. Most of them eat plant material or bacteria. Um, some species will actually hunt the larvae of other aquatic insects. Then they generally, almost always, crawl out of the water onto anything dry, bridge embankments, grasses, boulders, anything like that, and they emerge out of their nymphal shucks and become adults, and then they'll mate, and the females will fly over the water, sometimes dragging or dipping their eggs uh, to release them, and, and the cycle begins again. And what part of that life cycle is most often imitated by fly fishers? Sure. If you're living anywhere where there's a salmon fly hatch in the west or a giant stonefly hatch in the east, I mean, those nymphs have a three-year life cycle. So they're always, you know, you think when some nymphs complete their life cycle for the year and the eggs are dropped into the stream, it takes those eggs a while before they develop and nymphs emerge from there and before they get big enough that really trout mess with them. But uh, something like a giant stone or a salmon fly, because they have a three-year life cycle, they're always present in the water in various sizes. And it's the same with golden stoneflies, most of which have you know, a one- to two-year life cycle. They can be present in the water in various sizes. So year-round fishing those nymphs is a good idea. 
I just did a, I've just finished up this week a story for fly fishermen about stoneflies in the east and western United States. And in there I mentioned that some of my friends that live out here in Montana, they have a black stonefly nymph imitating a salmon fly tied to their leader 12 months out of the year. Now they may drop off a smaller nymph off the back of that to imitate whatever else could be hatching at the time, whether it's a PMD or a western green drake or whatever it is, but they have that stonefly nymph tied on year-round. And fishing the adults is awesome, it's fun, and certainly for that week or two when they're present and the fish are on them, it's terrific. But over the course of the season, that the nymph fishing is certainly you know, more productive. So the people you're just talking about fishing the stones you know, year-round, they weren't using it as a point fly, though. They were using it as the upper fly, right? And is that Correct. normally, or do they use it as a point fly at times? They will. I mean, you know, especially if it's during the salmon fly hatch, they may have two different versions of the salmon fly on at the same time. But okay. when you use it as the top fly, you're also getting the aspect of weight from it. So anytime I don't have to put split shot on my leader, I'm a very happy person. If you can yeah. use the weight of a big salmon fly nymph to drag a smaller PMD nymph down into the zone where the trout are feeding, to me that's a pretty good idea. Yeah, then the stonefly is riding lower and the, the point fly is riding a little higher, I would think, in the water sure. column, right? Yeah, just off. Sure. Yeah, yeah. So does it really, if you're in an area where you know there are stoneflies, is there, how important it is for the size of that nymph? I mean, it seems like given a three-year lifespan, it could be almost any size, and the trout would be happy with it. Is that true? Has size sure. become less important? It's true to a certain extent. So you think that the flies that are getting closer to emerge are going to be more active. They're going to be, especially if you're talking like the window of when the hatch is happening, you probably want to fish a little larger one. I sort of let water levels determine the size that I'm using. A big stonefly nymph is pretty heavy, so if you're fishing late summer and you're fishing a, a stream that's not super deep, a big nymph's going to get stuck on the bottom all the time. So it might be advantageous to use the same pattern in a smaller size just so it drifts through more naturally without getting hung up. Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah, good tip, good tip there. Do you tend to have more nymph patterns for the stoneflies than you do adult patterns? seems because you've got to hit the adults at a certain time of year, and then that's it, right? I mean, you, it, it's not – right. those hatches don't linger around too much. So what are some of the patterns that you carry in your box for the stoneflies? Sure. Pat's rubber legs are certainly hard to beat. Yeah, I have those in a million different colors and a million different sizes, and that is just a, a tremendous fly. At other times, particularly when I'm using the fly primarily as weight, I'll put on something like a double bead stone where it's got two heavy beads built into the body and there's more of a taper to it so it tends to sink a little quicker. But I do have a fair amount of those nymph patterns compared to adults. Uh, like I said earlier, I'm sort of crazy, so don't get me wrong, I have a lot of adult patterns too, even though I don't know. <laughs> <need them. laughs> yeah, yeah, that, um, you know, that uh, Pat's rubber leg seems to you know, be in everybody's box uh, for good reason. It's a great yeah. fly, it so, really is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Real quick, you didn't spend a whole lot of time on midges in the book, but, uh, you know, that's out west here. That's that's an important family to deal with. What is your take on midges? I mean, uh, is it was a, sure. why 
not to criticize your book, but just why didn't you spend more time on midgets? Is it just they're less important just generally? or No, I wouldn't say that at all. Well, first off, you know, the, the mids life cycle, by the way, they have a complete life cycle like caddis. So they pupate, they have a resting stage, which can actually be very important to imitate. Now, I, I've seen midge hatches on the Yellowstone River, Roger, where I could take handfuls of, of little tiny midge shucks. There's hundreds of thousands of them collected yeah. on the side of the river. Now, they're vital. My thoughts with midges is they're tiny, right? So the yeah. larger our flies, the better the trout get to look at them and the easier it is for them to discern them as forgeries. So for midge patterns, I tend to keep it more simple. I fish, you know, basically a brown nymph, a black nymph, or I'm sorry, a brown midge, a, a cream midge, a black midge, and an olive, and, and that's pretty much it. It just vary, vary the sizes. I have a winter pass, so I fish to Pew Spring Creek in Paradise Valley all the time. I was just there a couple of days ago. And I would say day in, day out, a red zebra midge is probably the most effective fly pattern on that creek. I mm -hmm. just do exceptionally well with it. And that's one of my favorites. Even when I see black midges coming off and everything, it, it just seems like the, those small red you know, midge, either larva or peeper patterns, just, just tend to work really well. And but again, I, I just don't think the fish get quite a good look at them. So I think when it comes to midges, presentation, getting a good drag-free drift with such a small fly, they're not always super tiny. You know, there's still waters and everything that have some pretty large midges on them. But oftentimes right, yeah. when we're, we're talking about midges, we're talking about things that are very small. And, and it just seems to me that, that getting the, the drift and things like that are, are more important than a particular pattern style. And the patterns, yeah. Yeah, I hear you. Yeah, because they all pretty much look the same. It's like you know, <laughs> they the do. body, the head, right? And then does it have yeah, a river, not right. a river? What color is it? And Yeah, I mean, you can. Right. That's why when you look at Pat Dorsey's box, it's basically, <laughs> you know, this, that, and every possible combination. And, um, sure. and I'm sure he has it. Well, this isn't working today. We'll switch to you know, the cream one now. <laughs> and that's it, you know. Right. Yeah. And yeah. Pat, too, is, is also fishing specific places where, where there's a lot of people fishing the exact same midge pattern. Yeah. So what I do a lot of my fishing, you know, which for midges in general, you know, you're talking the winter time or maybe the early spring, I'm not seeing many people fishing, and the fish aren't really picky here, you know. Yeah. So Pat's also sort of in a di different circumstance with that. Yeah, uh, that, yeah. fishing uh, uh, South yeah. Platte is uh, – it's a tough fishery. I mean, you know, any yeah, day of the sure. week, that's a tough fishery. Like they say, they all have doctorate degrees down there. <laughs> <It's all flat laughs> sure. Yeah. yeah. Right. So um, let me take a quick break, and then I'm going to hit a bunch of these questions that people wrote in. There's still a bunch of them, so uh, we'll try to roll through those as quickly as we can. But hang tight, and I'll be right back. Enrico Puglisi flies pride themselves with creating unique and one-of-a-kind flies and fly tying material. Enrico has been experimenting with durable synthetic and natural materials to create flies to catch fish for more than 20 years. His innovative products, including brushes, fibers, and components, have made a major impact on the direction of saltwater fly fishing, and his methods and materials are respected worldwide. Whether you want your flies hand-tied for you or you would like to tie your own, be sure to visit Enrico Puglisi Flies and browse through their online catalog. Visit epflies.com and do a little shopping today. Again, that's epflies.com.
You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, and we're talking with Paul Weimer about bugs. And if you'd like to ask Paul a question, just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and use that Q&A text box to send your, your question. Okay, Paul, let's try to go through these questions quickly. And they're kind of random all over the place. But Chuck, in place of... The lightning California, round, I like it. Yeah, the lightning round. There we go. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Chuck, in place of real California, says, in regards to most aquatic insects having a majority of their life cycle underwater, would it be fair to say that statistically that most rivers will have a greater percentage of bugs under the water surface and that those are the bugs we should focus on most? <laughs> I love that question. Chuck, I'm going to formally tell you that if you don't want to, you never have to fish dry flies. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I think that's what we're getting at. <laughs> but, no, absolutely you know, fish do spend most of the time feeding subsurface. And like I said, I, I probably, because I fish in the winter, I fish year-round, I, I fish nymphs probably even more so than I do dries. That said, if you have a bunch of fish rising in front of you and, and you want to catch them, there's nothing wrong with that either. Yeah, yeah. Tony in New Jersey says, when you see groups of squirrels just below the surface, but they are not taking any duns or spinners, what do you try? And he said he did make a note here, mainstream Delaware River. So he's in your own, your old fishing grounds there. If it's the main stem of the Delaware River, I'd probably try praying first, <laughs> hoping to get divine answers because those fish can really be tough. What I generally try is a pattern that, that crosses over. So like a CDC emerger where some of it is hanging below the surface, yet I can still see the wing. That lets me know that I'm getting a proper drift through there. If that doesn't work, sometimes fishing a floating nymph. So you take an unweighted pheasant tail and you grease it up with a little bit of gink or something and fish it just in the surface film. Sometimes those fish are eating those. Oftentimes on the Delaware, if they're being that tough, I would also suggest moving on and finding somebody more cooperative. <laughs> the Delaware should be unforgiven. Tony, good luck out there. <laughs> That's from a guy that used to guide the Delaware. So, uh, yeah, uh, trying to keep his clients happy. Let's move along here. <laughs> uh, Edward in Wisconsin says, hey, Paul, I'm trying to match the hatch. What is your first consideration in your choice of flies? The size trump color, and do you tend to go with uh, an emerger rather than an adult with the idea that the emergers are more vulnerable? Sure. I would say that size almost always trumps color. Now, when I'm saying that, I mean color shade. So if the fish are eating an orange bug, you don't want to throw one that's black at them. But in general, I do believe that size is much, much more important than trying to match a specific color. Emergers are always great. The one thing that people don't always realize, though, especially if some of the entomology stuff doesn't interest them, like they'll put a trailing shuck on every fly pattern. And I love trailing shucks. Anything that emerges in the surface film, I'll definitely put a trailing shuck on that fly pattern. But things like the Epiora species, like the pink alberts in the west or the quill gordons in the east, they emerge on the stream bottom and swim to the surface as fully formed done. So if you put a trailing shuck on that, you're not really imitating what's taking place. It's the same thing with the vast group of, of you know, light-colored insects they call cahills in the east. Many of those emerge on the stream bottom, and that's why they're not tied with trailing shucks either. But for species that, that are, I definitely <laughs> think that 
A trailing shuck is a triggering a mechanism showing the fish something that, that probably isn't going to be able to fly away before they can rise to eat it. Okay. Craig, Portland, Oregon. Oftentimes I will hit a particular river to fish a certain hatch during the time frame provided by the local fly shop report, only to find that in two hours of fishing I only see a couple of the bugs and observe no fish rising. Because of that, I frequently never end up putting on that dry fly pattern as it seems futile. Example, I fished the Metolius in Oregon last year during the famous green drake hatch and literally saw only two green drakes in over two hours and no rises after very carefully sitting and observing the water. In this case, should I put on one and give it a try anyway, or what would your approach be? Sure. I would say it depends on what your goals are for the day, Craig. If you just want to catch fish on dry flies, sure. If you're seeing a smattering of a specific insect, it could be worth blind casting that uh, a fly pattern to imitate that. But if you're not seeing steadily rising fish or, or fish that are rising often enough, there there probably aren't enough bugs to get them interested. So it would probably be more effective if you nymphed during those periods and imitated those. Again, you know, Having a hatch, uh, a fly shop tell you a specific hatch is, is coming off right now. There's so many variables with that. Maybe yesterday it was cloudy and a little bit of drizzle, and they said that, that the green drake hatch was terrific. Well, today it's bright and sunny and warmer, and, and maybe that's why you're only seeing a handful of them. Customers, yeah. I spent a lot of years running fly shops, and customers get a good chuckle out of busting our chops about saying the fishing was always better yesterday, and, and yeah. maybe there's something to that. But depending on the weather conditions, the, the fishing really could have been better yesterday, or maybe it'll be better tomorrow. Yeah, and that's, that's totally true. I, I think I've said this on another show, but my cousin was fishing Gray Reef up in uh, Wyoming, and, and one day he's sending me all these pictures, all the fish they caught, and then the next day... I didn't hear from him. I said, what's going on, Grant? He says, uh, nothing today, not one fish today. <laughs> you know, it's fishing. amazing how that can happen. Same guide, same river, you know, uh, but sure. two different days. So, yeah. I, Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Mark Power, what is the best water temperature time of day to fish bug imitations? I usually don't fish dry flies until the afternoon. So, Mark, that's going to depend on a lot of things. Time of year is important. For Generally speaking, the bugs tend to like water temperatures the same that the trout do, 55 to 65 degrees. So water temperatures may not get close to that in the spring or even the fall until the late afternoon. But it, let's say you're pursuing a trico hatch in the middle of summer where it's been 90 degrees the day before. That temperature may, may happen, may most likely happen first thing in the morning. The green drake, the eastern green drake hatch, which happens generally the end of May and June, I've seen in, in extremely warm water or warm air temperatures that the water warms up and that hatch may not even occur until the middle of the night. So some of the best dry fly fishing I've had from that is first thing in the morning as the sun's just rising and there's still fish that are picking off the occasional natural that emerges and maybe some of the spinners that are still floating around some of the eddies. So it's really going to depend on, on the hatch you're talking about and the time of year. Yeah, that's it's so specific to water you're fishing. I, I interviewed 
Bill Edrington and talking about the Arkansas River in Colorado. And he says, I don't understand why people get there first thing in the morning. He says, the fish don't start biting until about 10 o'clock. He says, the best thing you can do to fish the Arkansas is go into town, get a nice big breakfast, omelet, hash browns, bacon, sausage, <laughs> live it up, and then get out there about 10, and then it's time to fish. But And, and it all has to do with water temperature, right? I mean, My, my you know, wife and I used to live on Penns Creek in central Pennsylvania, and there the eastern green jay catch is that stream's most famous hatch. And there's lots of times where it'd be 8.30 in the evening or even 9 o'clock when I'm just getting to the stream and everybody's leaving because <laughs> I, I know that it was so hot and those bugs are just going to start to emerge or this, or maybe they're leaving and the spinners haven't even hit the water yet. And uh, you're absolutely right, Roger. Yeah, yeah, that's crazy, huh? Ray in Denver says, uh, what's the prevailing thought on those flies that don't imitate anything yet are successful. How much does a trout's curiosity play into the take? Remembering that these are the very same fish that, that hit a, a red devil spoon. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. That, that's a great question, Ray. I, I would say it depends on the fishery you're fishing. So trout learn by eating things and seeing what happens. And, you know, a 20-inch trout in a famous fishery has probably been caught a few times. And that fish may, may know a thing or two. If you're fishing some little mountain stream that doesn't see many people, maybe it doesn't matter. In my dry fly book, I talked about people becoming imaginative carpenters and trying to match hatches. Like if you see orange crane flies in the air and all you have are sulfur parachute flies, the fish don't know that. If they look close enough, fish them and if they work who cares what what the pattern is supposed to imitate just try to make your flies work for you and anything you know grab an insect out of the air take a look at it look in your box and see something that looks similar and give it a try yet you never know what might work yeah yeah harold in forest virginia when fishing a heavy hatch and there are so many options floating down the river i've heard people say throw something out there Completely different. That has that has never worked for me. <laughs> How about doing a couple of sizes larger of the same bug? Are fish wired like that? <laughs> sure. So when I, my days in the Upper Delaware, when they would release cold water from the dam on the west branch of the Delaware, we would get sulfur hatches that could last as long as two months. And at the end of those two months, those fish had seen every sulfur known to man. My friend Harrison Steves, who's a very imaginative fly tire, he used to come into the shop all the time and tell me that in the middle of those sulfur hatches, he was throwing ant patterns and catching fish. And I started doing the same thing, and it worked. So you figure that ants are going to fall in the water from time to time, and these fish have seen so many sulfur patterns that they're just not buying into it anymore. So throwing them something that could possibly be on the water at the same time of year can sometimes work. You know, nothing works all the time. The other thing with throwing larger flies, I would say if you're fishing hatches that are extremely prolific or spinner falls where the water is just covered with bugs, sometimes you have a very difficult time in getting the fish to even notice your patterns there. And that's when I'll generally fish a fly that's a size or, or even two, especially if it's close to dark, larger, just on, on the chance that I can get the fish to try to pick that bigger one out among the, all the, the naturals that are on the water. Does it make, in a situation like that, is it helpful to be 
trying to fish to a particular feeding fish rather than kind of blind dry fly fishing? I mean, do you have absolutely, Roger? I think it, it it's almost always better to do that because you can time those fish and pattern them and see most fish if they're steadily rising, they're feeding it somewhat specific intervals generally, especially if they're holding in a one position. And any time you can continually put your fly over that fish in that one position, you increase your chances of catching it. Yeah, yeah. Matt in Basalt, uh, Colorado, says, hey, Paul, can you talk a little bit about the general diet feeding habits of healthy wild trout in a natural setting? How much food do they consume, and where in the water column do they prefer to feed on a daily basis over the course of the year? That's a great question, Matt. I would say wild trout, unlike stock trout, you know, wild trout live with two foundational principles in their lives. Number one is they want to eat where they have protection from predators. That's why you see fish in scum lines or in riffles, something where, you know, they're protected against ospreys and things like that, which will attack them from above, or even bigger fish that will, will, will go after them from below. The other criteria they have is they cannot waste more calories feeding than they'll take in from the insect they're eating, which is why generally you'll only see fish feeding in heavy water if a hatch is extremely prolific and they're eating enough of them that, that they're getting a caloric bang for their bucket as they rise each time. You know, if you're talking about a sterile stream or a little stream, that, a little mountain stream that doesn't seem much pressure, those fish will, will just sort of pick off stuff as, as they come by. And as for where in the water column they'll be eating, it will depend. It will depend on the aquatic insects they're eating, where in the water column to those specific insects emerge. Again, some of them will emerge on the stream bottom, some of them in the middle of the column, some of them, many of them in the surface film, and that's where you'll find them. I don't think anglers always realize either that, that fish move. So if you have a hatch that starts pouring out of a riffle, let's say you got PMBs coming that are emerging out of a riffle, fish will move up from a pole into that riffle and take up feeding positions there where they can just tilt their heads up and eat. It's the same thing later as the sun sets or even at night when they're protected by darkness from overhead predators. They'll feed in very shallow water in the tails of poles and things like that, and you can search for them there. Don in Bozeman, Montana, writes in, when a nondescript fly pattern is regarded as likely being representative of multiple different natural bug families, how does one decide which it best represents, when to use that fly, or does it even matter? You know, Don, I would say that the fish would answer that question for you. If they're eating your fly pattern, that whatever you have on is, is a good representation. I would look at a natural and check its size and look at the flies in my boxes. And do I have a fly that closely approximates that? One time I was fishing a stream and there was a hatch of, um, they don't really have a common name. On the Delaware, they used to call them Hebes. And they are sort of a chartreuse color. And my pale yellow flies I was trying to imitate them didn't work. So I, I went over and I actually pulled some grass off the stream bank and I rubbed the grass onto them and made the flies sort of chartreuse and the fish ate them. So I would also say think of the flies in your boxes as tools. So 
cut the wings off of them. Turn the wings sideways if they're eating naturals that maybe are deformed and, you know, that are being blown over in the wind. Manipulate your flies to make them match what you're seeing. And I think that's sort of the best course. Just just don't – it doesn't matter. I, in one of the books, I, I mentioned the number of people that come into the fly shops over the years that asked me to tell them the names of all their flies. And I did that for years, but it really doesn't matter. If the fish eats it, it doesn't matter if they're taking your sulfurs because they think it's cream flies. Just getting the fish to eat them is all that really matters. Bob Nunn in New Jersey, he says, what flies are effective because of increased UV reflection? Boy, that, that's a tough one, Bob. I know there's lots of UV materials on the market, you know, UV dubbings and things like that. I, I don't know about you, Roger. I have not spent a lot of time playing with that sort of stuff. I don't know if that really matters. Perhaps it does. Maybe I'm missing out on something, but I'm not really sure. Have, yeah. you, have you done anything with that, Roger? Well, I noticed um, some materials are covering in uh, materials I've gotten recently for like mop flies. <laughs> some of the sure. materials for mop flies come in UV as sure. opposed to not UV. I haven't tested that myself to see one's working better than the other or not. I I know I, I see some of the uh, materials being used for hot spots and stuff like that just to give, sure. I think, a, a little different look. But I mean, this, this is again, America, right? All you got to... All you got to do is pop in a Mentos and you'll get the girl, right? So I I, I don't know <laughs> when it comes to marketing what what yeah. what's real and and what Test. we just sort of hope is real. So I, one I'm thing not in sure. the, yeah, and one thing we talk about in marketing because I do a lot of that uh, is um, <laughs> test. You test. You're not sure what sure. works. You test test two headlines. Which one brings in the most leads? You know, test two flies sure. and see if you catch more fish. I guess that's the, yeah. the final. Yeah answer there. Um, Gordon in Deerfield. I, I wish I had more. Yeah. Gordon in Deerfield, Massachusetts, uh, if you see a trout digging into sandy, muddy waters, what are they going after? Scuds? Boy, that's a tough question, Gordon, without knowing what exactly lives in the streams you're fishing. I could probably guarantee it, it's not scuds. For the most part, scuds don't swim very well, so they like to hang around vegetation and things like that. It could be anything. Some streams have little snails in them. They could be picking midge larva or pupa out of there. Maybe they're eating crayfish. If it's if you're allowed by law, you know you're not allowed everywhere. In some places you need a permit, but but if you are allowed by law in the stream you're talking about, you know take a little fine mesh net and and kick a little sand into your net. See what you see in there, and whatever is in there is maybe what they're going after. Andrew in Westchester, New York, says, I was wondering if the way that flies are tied can be river-specific. There were flies I used to fish on Farmington and Connecticut and other rivers that were not successful at all on the upper Delaware system. The trout not only did not eat on the Delaware, but were amused by them. <laughs> <laughs> well, Andrew, if it makes you feel any better that the Delaware trout have been amused by my flies many times over the years, for sure. Um, that is absolutely the case. So the Delaware, when you think about the Delaware, so a long time ago, before they logged the Delaware, the Delaware was a, a narrower and deeper river, and there were brook trout in it there. But for most of the point of European history on the Delaware River, it has been a wide 
pretty low gradient flat river more suited really for bass than trout and before they built the reservoirs that provide the drinking water for new york city there were a lot of trout found in there but that cold water helped the trout to flourish so fly patterns like a standard catskill style fly that sits high on on hackles that are wrapped perpendicular to the hook you know they don't work as well in the delaware river system and and there certainly are more flush floating flies and the cvcs snowshoe emergers things like that that tend to ride in the surface film tend not always but tend to work better there and that sort of holds true for rivers or you know all over there's different places I fish that I have certain flies that work really well there, and, and maybe I don't do well on them anywhere else, or, or even the time of year in which I'm fishing them. Yeah, kind of goes back to what we talked about earlier tonight. Every fishery is different, right? And sure. the, the subtleties sure. there may be what, what makes all the difference in the world, yeah. yeah. Tony says, on the mainstream of the Delaware, the March brown and gray fox mayflies I can never tell which one they are on. I usually start with the March brown and then try the gray fox. What color do you suggest to tie the body of the gray fox imitation? Many thanks. It's a good question, Tony. I go back again to that man I mentioned earlier today, Patrick McCafferty of Purdue University. He did research on the gray fox and the March brown, and they used to be classified as two distinct separate species. However, he reclassified them all as one, so they're now Macafferterium. Remember, his name is Macafferty. It's Macafferterium vicarium. So according to professional entomologists, there is actually no difference between a March brown and a gray fox. However, yeah. I agree with you. I, I think you're right. There are March browns that what we anglers would call gray fox, and they're generally smaller than what we would call March browns, and they're generally lighter in color. So a March brown, which I would fish with, they generally have brown mottled wings and bodies that are almost a yellowish tan, while a gray phlox, some of their wings are, are almost gray, and their bodies are a light tan. So I would go maybe a size 12 or a size 14 if I was imitating the gray fox, and maybe a size on the Delaware, I've seen them pushing size 8s, the females, or, or 10s or, or 12s with a brown wing and, and a yellowish body. And, you know, science tells us that they're the same things, but, but I agree they, they do look different to us. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, there can be variations on, well, anything natural, and they're, they're never identical, right? I mean, you can look at two sure. white-tailed deer, and they're different colors, you know? <laughs> I mean, For sure, uh, yeah. Yeah, just go ahead. I was going to say, in mayflies, depending on what they're eating as nymphs can impact the color of their bodies. Mm -hmm. Depending yeah. on how long they've been exposed to oxygen can impact the color of their bodies. So there's a lot that goes into that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, Steve Larson in Utah. Uh, he says, I live in northern Utah, and I fish small streams and rivers here all year round, even when there's ice and snow on the banks. I'm a senior, 68 years old, and I've been fishing for over 50 years. I only use dries, even in the winter. In winter, I use mostly uh, blue-wing olives, uh, parachute midges, and stimulators. I always catch fish, but I'm open to other dry fly options. What new winter dry fly tricks can you teach this dirty old dog? <laughs> <laughs> well, first of all, Steve, I won't even turn 50 till May, so 
I'm guessing I should probably take a course from you because you got it. And plus, you're fishing dry flies all winter, which makes you much more tougher than I am. Oh, so, man, is it tough. That, <laughs> yeah, right? So, <laughs> you know, first off, I would suggest tying on a nymph, but I'm going to go past that. You know, I think you're nailing it, Steve. So blue-winged olives and midges are basically the, the things you're going to see that time of year. I think it's cool that the fish are eating stimulators, which unless you have maybe some little tiny black stones you're imitating with those, that, that's cool that they'll eat them. But I'm a big fan of, like, CDC and Snowshoe Rabbit, blue-winged olive emergers. So if, if you haven't tried those, I, I would give those a shot and little CDC midges as well. But I'm just impressed that you're hardcore. And, you know, I wrote a book about fishing dry <laughs> flies, and, and I'm a wimp and who's nymph fishing in the winter half the time while, while you're fishing dry, so I'm more impressed by you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm I'm not a winter fly fisher. <laughs> that's why that's why I'm going to Mexico next month. You know, so, uh, nice, Roger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where the water's eighty degrees, the air's eighty degrees, the rain's eighty degrees, and uh, and then you go cool off in air conditioning. That's that's my gig. Anyway, uh, one last question. Yeah, Heinz Ward is from the East Coast. He says, "What do you miss about fishing on the East Coast?" First off, Heinz Ward is a receiver for the Pittsburgh Steelers, so I'm going to guess this is not his real name. But if oh, it is okay. Heinz Ward, I'm a huge Steeler fan, so I love you very much. But I'm going to go with that's not really him. Okay. What do I miss <laughs> most about fishing on the East Coast? I miss a lot of things. I, I will always miss the Delaware River. Um, mm-hmm. People out West think I'm, I'm nuts for how I drone on about the Delaware. But I have never seen anywhere in my life if you like prolific hatches that are complex and complicated for very large wild fish, I have never fished a place better than the Upper Delaware River, and I, I will always believe that. I miss that. I don't get me wrong. Montana is my home now, and and I love many many things about the fishing here, and, and you know there's a reason I'm here. But the Delaware River is a place where you can go, Roger. You can have a dozen fish feeding hardcore in front of you, and at the end of the night, you may not catch any of them. <laughs> I mean, they're that picky, and, and honestly, I love that stuff. I, I love that, that game. I love – it's also the, the river is so prolific with its bug life and hatches that one fish might be eating a sulfur, another one eating a green drake, this one's picking off a slate drake, and you've got to study those fish and, and figure out what each specific animal is doing out there. And, wow. and that sort of chess game is something I really love. And, and there are times, there are places, you know, certainly the Henry's Fork and, and anywhere in the West when there are specific hatches coming off it, that it can be somewhat like that, you know, the Paradise Valley Spring Creeks. But, you know, uh, while people are throwing 8 million sulfur patterns at fish rising on the west branch of the Delaware, you know, I'm catching fish by throwing whatever grasshopper patterns in my box in August. So so, they're both beautiful in their own way. But but I I, I will always love and miss the Delaware. Well, good, good. Well, unfortunately, it's time to wrap things up. We did go over, but I wanted to get through everybody's questions that wrote in ahead of the show to make sure we got those covered. But uh, stick with us for a few more minutes. We're going to give away a few prizes. And, and of course, Paul's book, the bug book, courtesy of Headwater Books. So hang tight, and we'll do that in just a moment.
The Ugly Bug Fly Shop in Casper, Wyoming, has been serving fly fishers in Wyoming and around the world since 1983. Their selection of top-of-the-line gear and a huge assortment of flies is one of the best in the land. All products are available in their fly shop and online. Looking for advice? Just give them a call, and their expert professional staff will help you with whatever you need. Visit Ugly Bug Fly Shop today at uglybugflyshop.crazyrainbow.net. That's uglybugflyshop.crazyrainbow.net. Or you can call them at 866-845-9284. That's 866-845-9284. Just a quick reminder to everyone, before you leave the website tonight, please take a minute and give us your feedback about the show. You can find a link on our homepage in the section under tonight's show. This is what did you think of the show. Just click on that link, leave your comments. We'd really appreciate it. Now it's time to give away uh, some prizes here. And if you are, the first things we're going to do is uh, winners from our drawings. And these are randomly selected from our show's registration database. If you didn't register for tonight's show already, then it's too late now. But we will be sure to, to do it again in the future for, for the upcoming shows to see if you can win for those. So let me just... Uh, Get my act together here. Hold on just a second so I can get to my database. And let's see here. First thing we're going to give away is a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International. If you're not a member of Fly Fishers International, um, go check them out. It's uh, flyfishersinternational.org. They're an international organization for fly fishing, both you know, cold water, warm water, salt water. So a great organization to support. They do a lot with conservation efforts. Uh, our winner for that is Patrick Magdinick in Pennsylvania. So Patrick, congratulations on winning that one-year membership. So we will email you after the show to tell you how you can uh, collect your prize. Thanks for, uh, for playing. Now let's see. We can get our next winner, which is for a one-year membership to Fly Fishing and Tying Journal, which you can learn more about at amatobooks.com. And that is going to be, looks like, well, let's see here. It didn't come up. Let me try it again. And come on there. Waiting for the computer. Uh... Looks like Jim Bissell in Ohio. Jim Bissell. So congratulations, Jim, on getting that one-year subscription to Fly Fishing and Tying Journal from Amato Books. Thanks for playing, guys. Now let's give away a copy of Paul's book, The Bug Book, courtesy of Headwaters Books. Go to headwaterbooks.com, and you can check out all their books there. And so now I've got to clear my queue here. Uh, question is, you have to be listening closely for this one. Of course, Paul's up in the Yellowstone area. He mentioned on the fire hole there was one fly you had to be able to imitate. What is that fly up there? A one fly on the fire hole river in the park. So while we're waiting here, see if we got a winner here. Uh, I'm not too sure about that. Um, first answer is white fly. 
I don't think that's close enough to you, Paul. No. I got no. a I got a closer one here. Next one up is White Miller. Sound closer? That's it. That's it. That's it. Bob Younger in Indianapolis. Uh, you just got yourself Paul's book, and uh, it looks like Bob's won a few times in the past too. So, like you can keep a record of this Bob. stuff. Yeah. Um, so good listener. And uh, Bob, send me your address. Got your name, got your email. Send me your address in the same box you just sent the answer in, and we'll get you that book sent out uh, from Headwaters. So thanks for listening. Thanks for paying attention, and congratulations on winning that. Paul, thank you so much for being on again. I always enjoy talking with you, and uh, it's always a pleasure. And one of these days we'll have to fish together, and I'll have to come visit you up there. So it sounds like you're living in a beautiful place now. So. That sounds great to me, Roger. I always I enjoy always enjoy being on your show. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. Hopefully, all of you have found the podcast archive on our website. If you haven't, just look for that link on the top line menu. First option is you can search the archive with keywords, and then we have it categorized in different areas. Done over 350 shows now. Paul, I've several shows with Paul. Uh, so you can look him up by name, too, Paul Weimer, and see uh, some of the other shows that Paul's done and enjoy that, like uh, the Dry Fly uh, show we did recently as well. So check it out, and I'm sure you'll be pleasantly surprised at what you find there. Our next broadcast will be on February 2nd, 7 p.m. Mountain, 9 p.m. Eastern Time. And on that show, I'm going to interview Bob Romano. And our topic for the show will be Rangeley Lakes region of Maine. Bob is an author and a fishing camp owner in the Rangeley Lakes region of Maine. And Bob loves to examine why we fish using the rivers, lakes, and streams of Maine's great north woods as his literary campus uh, in his writing. So join us and learn about the places to fish, how to fish them, and a bit of history about this historic fishing region. Be sure to add this to your upcoming show to your calendar. And we'd like to thank Fly Fishers International, Amato Books, Lease Ferry Anglers, Charlie Leslie Fly Fishing, and Enrico Puglisi Flies for sponsoring our show tonight. And don't forget to visit our website at askaboutflyfishing.com and make sure you're signed up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. Thanks for listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We hope you enjoyed the show. That's it. Good night, everyone, and good fishing.